0: And Genesis is really the very first book in the beginning. It's the story of God's creation and how God, right at the beginning, had a redemptive work for mankind. Um, And what Matthew does is Matthew takes the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he tries to pull everything together for his audience. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that there's, um, let's say, Matthew over here, Matthew is a writer, and then there's Mark, who many theologians believe Mark was actually the ghost writer for the Apostle Peter because Peter was not very smart. um, However, he was a person who had been with Jesus. Then there was Luke, who was a doctor, and then there was also John. And all of them are telling the exact same story the same story, the ministry the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew, who we're going to be studying, primarily writes to a Jewish audience. And Matthew had one bottom line that he was trying to get to the Jewish audience, and it's simply this, that Jesus is king. Can I get amen with that? I'm, I spelled that correctly too, all right? So, Y'all are just fun today. This is great. So you have Matthew who's writing to the Jewish audience, and then you have Mark in Albany, New York, and you were on the phone with someone that's looking at a sunset in Miami, Florida. We're both looking at the exact same sunset, but we're looking at it from two different perspectives. And so all four of the Gospels is them looking at the exact same person, the same ministry, and the same work of Jesus from four different perspectives, primarily for the audience that they were trying to write to. And so Matthew um, does an incredible job tying in many mentions of the Old Testament. He actually references the Old Testament over 65 times because he's writing from a Jewish perspective. On top of that, Matthew was a tax collector, which means Jews did not like tax collectors because they were all about the money, all about taking the money. He was a tax collector that was called out of that to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what's significant about um, the gospel of Matthew is when it took place. Because from Genesis all the way to Malachi, you see that God is speaking. God is speaking through kings and through queens. God is speaking through prophets. God is speaking through the word or the Torah that we see. From Malachi, whenever Malachi was written all the way to the gospel of Matthew, there ends up becoming this silence from God. Silence that whenever Malachi wrote his words, which is the last book in the Old Testament, A silence that caused the people to have a longing until Jesus was born and Matthew his text. This silence was 400 years. And it was, might I even say, a prophetic silence that took place during this 400 years of silence. Because during that time, what happened was, an army, a military force, an empire by the name of Rome ended up rising to much authority and much power. And Rome was very, very good about going into a region and not changing the religious views of people as long as they would bend the knee to Caesar. And so what they did is they came into Israel, they ransacked Israel, they put them under oppression and under control And then they said, you can still worship your God as long as it doesn't interfere with us worshiping the Roman gods, plural, and it doesn't interfere with Caesar being the deity or the son of God. We'll talk about that next week, okay? And during this time, what happened during this 400 years is people started having a longing in their heart. A longing in their chest, an anticipation, and they started crying out for God to send the chosen one, the Messiah. This longing, this, this pining of the soul, of the spirit, people just crying out, God, we need you to save us. We need you to save us from the oppression of Rome. What happened during this period is there was an advent that took place. In Advent, and just like they were 2,000 years ago where they were in a season of Advent, here we are today in a season of Advent, longing for the return of our Savior. But when God spoke to the people of the world, not just the Jewish people, he didn't send a prophet this time, he didn't send a messenger, God came down from heaven and spoke to them face to face, which is significant. And with that, we have the gospel of Matthew. And so let's start off in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it's important to see right out of the gate, Matthew calls Jesus the Christ. Because, again, he was writing to a Jewish audience. And and the word Christ was reserved for the Messiah. And so if you're a Jewish person and you open up your email and you see this long email that you got from this guy, Matthew, right here, um, the very first thing you see is Matthew is saying, the guy Jesus that he's about to write about and talk about, is the Christ. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. And immediately he references two different covenants. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant, which is in Genesis 18 verse 19, where God spoke to Abraham and said, surely your offspring will be blessed, um, will end up blessing the entire world, the entire earth. Then the second covenant he references right here is the Davidic covenant, which is in Second Samuel, and I'm not going to go into these. So this is for your own notes. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses eight through twenty-nine, where he says that um, that out of the lineage of David there's going to be a king, and that king is going to end up reigning over all people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of not one, but of both of those covenants. So on top of that, Jesus is also the fulfillment of many of the prophetic words that were spoken about. Y'all are moving this on me. What is going? Y'all, nope, nope, nope. Y'all have to stay here. I love y'all. Oh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I'm, I have no notes on the screen. Love you guys. I'll give it up for Michael. No, he was doing that out oh, of the kindness of his heart. Um, so what, what ends up taking place is, where was I? Matthew chapter 1? Okay, yeah. So there's these two different covenants, and Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these covenants. Okay, Now, this is where I'm going to get to the part where I can't pronounce stuff. So any, any Greek or Hebrew scholars... Michael, you have to raise your hand because you're the only person in this room that has studied Hebrew and Greek, right? Um, So don't judge me, and y'all don't judge me either. And this is what I'm going to do. Whenever I get to a name, this is what I need from you guys. Uh, If I can't say it, I'm just going to say E or A or B. Is that cool? All right, so I'm not – no, I'll try a few. I'll try a few. All right, this is this is the 17 verses or 16 verses. Now we're going to read. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brother, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. If you have your notes and you want to highlight stuff, go on and highlight the name Tamar. We're going to jump back to. Her in just a minute, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of A, and A the father of N, and N the father of is that salmon, like salmon, you know, depending on where you're from, and and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, which I just love the name Boaz, and one day I'm going to make a joke that I saw, but I'm not going to do that today. but make sure that, anyways, Boaz, who is the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. All right, now this is where it gets more tricky. David was the father of Solomon and, uh, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of R, and R the father of A, and A the father of A. Asaph? Asaph. Okay, don't judge me. I don't want to get up here and like butcher this, all right? I'm just, this is all transparent. This is all transparent. And A, the father of J, and J, the father of J, and J, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, which kind of rhymes like Gotham, and Jotham, the father of of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of uh, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. M and M, the father of Amos, I got that one right, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jay, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. All right, so like I said, don't judge me. We can have fun with this, and and listen. I listened to one message over the teaching of all of this, and the guy got up here, and he said, hey... I'm I'm not even going to attempt to to say these names, so we're just going to skip over all of these, and I'm going to jump straight to verse 17, okay, which I'm at least attempting. And after the deportation of Babylon, J was the father of S, S was the father of Z, Z was the father of A, A was the father of E, E was the father of Azor, Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of A, And the father of E, and E was the father of E, and E was the father of M, and M was the father of Jacob. All right, I got that one. I got that one. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon were, somebody help me, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ was 14 generations. Now, in order for us to be able to understand this, we have to recognize that this was written to a Jewish audience. And numbers may not mean a whole lot to you, but to God, they mean everything. And there's not a number in the Bible that does not have significance and that does not have meaning. He wrote an entire book called Numbers, so it obviously matters to God. All right? So 14 plus 14 plus 14 is, for all of you mathematicians, the number 42. 42 is significant. And is woven all throughout the scripture. This is what I might even say the tapestry of redemption for mankind. The tapestry that God was woven together from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to where we are today of mankind. 42. 42 is mentioned multiple times in the bible uh, a few things about it is in the new testament it is 42 times that the word resurrection is mentioned it was also the year ad 42 whenever the majority of the apostles left jerusalem to go out and start their missionary journey to go and evangelize to the world and in numbers chapter 33 it was 40 Two stations or sites that God led the Hebrew people whenever they left Egypt until they went into their promised land. 42 sites that they had to go to until they were free from their bondage and they had redemption. And we see that God brought them. 42 is significant. We're even going to wind this in and in just a few moments with some other things as well. But it's significant that Matthew breaks this up into three chunks of 14. 14, 14, and 14. Three particular chunks. Three being very significant, which we'll talk about in But then if you take this right here, um, what makes up 14? Seven and seven. Seven and seven. Seven and seven, which looks like a greater than sign at this point because I'm not the best at writing numbers. In Genesis chapter one, God created earth on day one or the stars, the heavens, and it was formed with, or it was without form and it was void, right? It even says that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then on day two that God created On day three, God created. On day four, God created. On day five, God created. On day six, God created. Now what's interesting about this right here is that we've got three different sections of 14, six different sections of seven, looking back at the six different days that God created. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. He rested. Now, what's interesting is about these two, three sections of fourteen generations is what was taking place during this time. For the first section of fourteen, from Abraham all the way to David, the nation of Israel was rising. It was rising in influence. It was rising in power. It was rising in in who they were as the people of God, and then. Until the deportation of Babylon, they were reigning. And again, if I misspelled that, don't judge me. But they were reigning as kings that that had authority. It was the good years for the nation of Israel until the deportation of Babylon. When Babylon came back in, and then you had 14 generations that were ascending back to a place where they started. Now, the reason I say that is because this is interesting for us to be able to look at and to understand. 14 generations rising, 14 generations reigning, 14 generations rescinding back to a place of humility. Six groups of seven, three groups of 14. Whenever Jesus shows up, he is the beginning of the seventh section of the genealogy or the lineage that he came from. The seventh section, he's come to do something different and significant for the Hebrew people, but not just the Hebrew people, for all of mankind. Now, let's talk numbers for just a minute. This group of three is interesting because three simply just means divine wholeness. Six is the number of imperfection. It was six groups of seven, but at the same time, it was three groups of 14. And so somewhere in there, it's as if there's a wholeness that's coming to completion while at the same time, humanity is, in, is experiencing the imperfection. Then we see seven is the number of completion. And 14 in the Hebrew literally means to solidify the completion of seven that's taken place. And so all of this is woven in to the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus, right? All of this is is woven in and tied in right there. It's as almost if Matthew had help from somebody when writing it. Thank you, Kevin. I'm glad that you got that. In... The genealogy of, gene, genealogy of Jesus, there are five people that I want to talk about and that I want to point out for the next 10 minutes or so and break apart. And it's not kings that I want to talk about. We all know about King David. It's not prophets that I want to talk about. It's women that I want to talk about. Ladies? Yeah, yeah. Someone, got, someone goes, whoop, whoop. Because women are very important and very significant. Five. Women the first woman I want to talk about is a woman by the name of Tamar. See Tamar is a very very interesting woman because she was the daughter-in-law of Judah who is also in the lineage of Jesus. And in Tamar um, she was married to Judah's oldest son and unfortunately Judah's oldest son ends up dying. And so Tamar is left as a widow, and so Judah turns to Tamar, and as it was for Jewish custom, he speaks to Tamar, and he says, hey, um, I'm going to promise you to my youngest son, as it was of of Jewish custom, but what happened is when the youngest son became of age, he wanted nothing to do with Tamar, and so he looked at Tamar, and he abandoned Tamar, and he forgot about Tamar, and at this point, Judah, the father-in-law, was looking at this situation and he was really just hoping that Tamar would just run away and just kind of go off into the wilderness and die a lonesome widow self. But Tamar was desperate. She had hope about being in this family. To the point, I do not recognize, this, she disguised herself as a prostitute, and she ended up going to Judah, and she slept with Judah, and then out of that conceived two twins. Now, whenever Judah found this out, he was obviously furious and frustrated, and whenever he went to Tamar, Tamar was explaining, but like, I was desperate. I had hope about being a part of this family lineage, and whenever Judah heard this, it broke his heart. He had compassion for her, and then she She was grafted into the lineage of Jesus and gave birth to two twin boys that are a part of the genealogy of Jesus. What we can learn from Tamar and her life was that out of desperation, there is hope that arises. Now, I don't recommend you go and pretend that you're a prostitute nowadays. Um, I don't recommend that but this is how it was back then. The, the second person is Rahab. Now, Rahab was an actual prostitute. She was a prostitute, and she wasn't a Hebrew. She wasn't Jewish. She was not a part of um, the, the people of God, but she recognized that Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the one true God, and so Rahab Whenever the spies came over to Jericho right before they're about to go into the promised land, Rahab meets up with the spies and makes a deal with them as long as they gave her peace. And, and so they, they gave her some information. They hid some of the spies. Um, and, and out of this, what they said is, when we go and we attack Jericho, we want you to take a scarlet cord and I want you to toss it out your window and we will make sure not to destroy your house in this city. The word scarlet cord is mentioned 42 times in all of Scripture. It also points the scarlet cord that is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so what happened was, we all know the story of Jericho, Israel crossed over, they started surrounding the city, and they started marching around the city, and on the seventh day, seventh time, they surrounded the city, they let out a shout and of triumph, and the walls came tumbling down, except Rahab's house. And archaeologists have been able to look, and they have found that the city truly came down in all of the rubbles except for one particular house with a window near the main gate, which they believe was Rahab's house. In the middle of war, in the middle of turmoil, Rahab was fighting for peace to be found. So what happens is Rahab is then married into the tribe of Judah and becomes the mother of Boaz. Then the next person you have is Ruth. Now Ruth is a significant person because she has an entire book after her in the Bible, the book of Ruth. You should go and read it. But Ruth also was introduced with some very unfortunate circumstances in her life that both her husband and father-in-law ended up dying. And so she went to Naomi, um, who was her mother-in-law, and they kind of band together in a little town called Bethlehem. And while they were in Bethlehem, they were doing everything that they could to still say a part of what God was doing. And Ruth, regardless of the opposition against her, and regardless of what people said about her, and regardless of the horrible things that happened to her line, her family, she remained joyful and optimistic. And God granted her wish. And in the middle of that, um, God granted her wish and... She met Boaz, Boaz, who was the son of Rahab. See, we can look at the life of Ruth, and we can see that there is joy found in her life. And then the fourth woman that I want to talk about, I'm not going to spell it out because I'm going to put it wrong, but I'll try to spell it. Bathsheba. I was going to put BS up there for short, um, and then I was like, that wouldn't be good. So uh, I don't want to get in trouble from the elders. So uh, Bathsheba, I personally don't think Bathsheba was intentionally doing anything wrong. And many of you, you know this story. Bathsheba was bathing, and she don't think she was bathing in a provocative way. She was bathing in a normal way. And King David was looking out. I don't know if he was drinking his Starbucks watching the sunset or the sunrise in the morning. But whatever David was doing, he was looking out, and he sees this beautiful woman off in the distance who is bathing, doing what she would normally do. And in the middle of her bathing, David was like, ooh, she's attractive. Whenever I saw Christy, I was like, ooh, she's attractive. And which I'm getting the look right now, so I'm going to keep going. But David fell in love with Bathsheba. I mean, David was like gung-ho about Bathsheba, like, oh my gosh, my heart is just captivated. and Oh, she's absolutely gorgeous. To the point that that David did something really, really, really bad. Remember David, a man after God's own heart. David started sleeping with Bathsheba. And so now they're committing adultery. Why? Because Bathsheba was married to Uriah. And once David found this out, he looked at Uriah and he said, Hey man, I know you're one of my greatest captains in the guard, but I need you to go to war. And he took Uriah and he put him on the front lines of the war so that Uriah would be murdered or executed or put to death first in the war. So essentially, David, a man after God's own heart, is not only an adulterer, but he is also a murderer. And he did this intentionally to be able to get... Bathsheba, because of the love that he had for Bathsheba, or I won't say that. And then the fifth person. Fifth person being Mary. Now, if you read Luke and you read Matthew, you're going to see that the genealogy of Jesus looks a little bit different. That around David, it starts to kind of take a different turn, a different um, line and, and what we find in this is that in Matthew's account, Matthew follows Joseph's genealogy going all the way back to Abraham. but then in Luke's account, Luke follows Mary's genealogy, going all the way back to Abraham. And what we see is that both with Joseph and with Mary, both of them are from the lineage of David, and with their marriage, and with the impregnation by the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, all of this we see that Mary is ushering in the fulfillment of all that was promised from Genesis to Malachi. See, what's significant about this is you have not one, not two, not three, not four, but you have Five women who ushered in the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who came into this world to start a new genealogy. A genealogy that then took Tamar and Rahab, who were not even Jewish people, and grafted them into the kingdom of God. Let me put it this way. He welcomed Gentiles. He took people that were prostitutes and people that were having affairs and and people that were um, promiscuous to be able to get something out of desperation. And he said, that's who I want to come from. And in the middle of all of that taking place, Jesus started this new lineage whenever he came to this earth. He started a lineage that was going to replace what was being done in the old and to give rest. To all who put their trust in Him. Matthew is not just a book that we would read or a letter that we would just skim over. Matthew is a beautiful love story of God's love for you and God's love for me about how from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose about how God is in the process or in the middle of bringing his people to a place of rest, just like he was in Genesis chapter 1. And then he created man and women in his image. That God is in the process of redeeming people that maybe for some people they've gone from their Egypt in their life and they've been wandering in the 42 different sites of redemption or 42 different sites of sacrifice leading them to the place of redemption and freedom and rest that they can find in Jesus. And might I even say, what I love about this over here is you have Tamar, who in a very sinful way was hopeful. You have Rahab in a sinful way that was peaceful. You have Ruth in a not-so-sinful way, but she was optimistic, and we find joy in her. Bathsheba, who is extremely sinful with David, and we see all of these, these shadows of what Jesus came to fulfill. And out of this, guys, we get this idea of Advent 2,000 years later that the church is still celebrating and still rejoicing in and reminding that there is a season of hope that is found in Jesus, there's a season of peace that is found in Jesus, there's a season of joy that is found in Jesus, there's a season of love, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and that Jesus came to give us five. Five. The number of five representing grace. Grace for our sins, grace for our worries, grace for the stress that we experience in life, grace for the brokenness. And I just need to say this, if you think your family's jacked up, go study the 42 different generations before Jesus came you're going to see murderers, and adulterers, and people who loved war, and who were hungry to destroy things, and people who lied, and people who were scandalous, and it's time to put away your sacrifices, it's time to put away your atonement for your sins, it's time to put away you trying to be right, you trying to get everything correct, you trying to make sure you've got everything in order, and come to Jesus, why, and Matthew records this, the words of Jesus, where he looks out at his audience, and he says this, Come to me, all who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He then says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in your heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the gospel of Matthew. And this is what we're about to dive into for the next year. Learning from a rabbi, a Messiah, who is the Christ, who came to this world not just to forgive us of our sins, not just to give us grace, but came to give us rest in our soul, rest in our hearts, rest in our mind, to where we don't have to carry the yoke of slavery around anymore but we can take it and we can lay it at the feet of jesus will you stand to your feet this morning it's a tapestry of redemption and it's woven in from Genesis to Revelation, a tapestry of God's grace, a tapestry of God's forgiveness for you and for me and for this world. And this Christmas season, I want to invite you into that grace and into that redemption and into that freedom and into the rest that Jesus came to give. I want to close out with this, and I promise you, you guys can go ahead. Move this at this point as the worship team gets set up. And publicly, I'm sorry, Micah, if I was like, oh, like, what are y'all doing? Freaking out. I was freaking out internally. <laughs> uh, Jim Waltersdorf shared this several months ago, and in our series, The Kingdom, we also talked about this idea of gratitude. And I understand that in this Christmas season that there are people in this room who are stricken with anxiety, you're stricken with fear, you're stricken with worry, you're stricken with doubt, and the list can go on and on and on and on, right? But a neuro study found, and Jim shared this, and I think I stole it from him, and I actually looked up the neuro study, so what he was saying was true, but a a neuro study found that the same part of our brain that produces anxiety in our hearts, also produces gratitude in our hearts. And while we may be anxious, we can't experience gratitude, but while we are grateful, we won't experience anxiety. And I think if there's anything in our lives we need to look to Jesus, who because of him, we can experience gratitude and we need to be grateful. And so I don't know where you are today, but we're going to sing this song. And I actually, I asked them to sing this song, Gratitude, because we have a lot to be thankful for as a church. We have a lot to be thankful for as believers in Christ. And we have a lot to be thankful for here in America and in our world. And if you're here struggling today with worry or anxiety or fear, or maybe you're struggling with sin that's been weighing you down, um, our prayer team is going to be available. And if you guys want to just come on and come up here, now we want to create this space for you to be able to respond and to receive prayer. And then for the rest of us, I want to challenge us to get our eyes focused on Jesus. Let him be the perfecter of our faith. Let him be the one that that we can cast our burden and for us to come to him and find rest. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for the Gospel of Matthew, and I thank you for what it is that we're going to learn as we dive into this series. And Lord, I just ask that you would speak to us. Father, I ask right now, anyone who comes into this room that may have anxiety or worry, Father, that we would be able to come to the altar, and we would be able to lay it down, God. We would be able to join together as one church, unified under one banner of Jesus Christ, and to sing our hearts out, for what you've done. And so Lord, we worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name, if you need prayer, I wanna invite you to come forward as we sing, as we worship. And if you don't need prayer, I wanna invite you to sing loud because our King is worthy of it, amen?